Rejoicing in the Lord. What a wonderful thing. Um, before we get started this morning, I want to take just a moment to, to kind of share with you something I shared with the staff this week um, as we had our time in prayer. I told them that on Sunday mornings, uh, I increasingly have a little bit of angst. Um, not worry, uh, not anxiety, <laughs> but a little bit of angst. And it's because as I look out and see your faces when I stand up here, there are a number of you who I've not had the privilege to meet. And uh, it's difficult for me at times uh, because I want to speak to those to whom I know. It reminds me of when I was at the hospital, and uh, one of the things that I did while I was there was I was responsible for the leadership development of the managers, about 250 managers in the hospital. And one of the things that we would do primarily to carry out that training and development was uh, on a quarterly basis, we'd have a full day of leadership development uh, that typically had somebody coming in to speak to this group of people. Well, literally the last thing I did before I left the hospital was to do one of those leadership development sessions, but instead of inviting somebody in, I thought it might be really good for us to do that kind of from the inside where they hear from their peers talking about those principles of leadership development and those sorts of things. So it took a lot more work to pull it off, but I think it was significant for them to, to hear from, from one another about what those things might look like in the, in the workplace. But the reason I bring that up is because I distinctly remember after having had that time, I was the last presenter. It was the last thing I did on my last day at the hospital. And I remember walking off the stage and thinking to myself, that's not what I'm called to do. That's not what I'm called to do. Now, you need to understand that I, I loved what I did at the hospital. That was really the leadership development piece was probably one of my favorite things. But the reason that I felt that was because the people to whom I was speaking were not those that I had any meaningful relationship with beyond just the cursory hello in the hall uh, for the most part. What I knew, though, was that God had called me to be a pastor at Melanie Park where the people I knew and I shared life with and I was thankful that that was where I was going to be going and those were the people I was going to be speaking to. And so... I want to encourage us together, especially as there are new faces here, that we work together to try to engage with one another and get to know each other. And I'm including myself in that. Um, it really is important to me, even as I prepare a sermon during the week, to have your faces in my mind as I look at his word and prepare to share with you every Sunday. And so let's make a point to do that. Somebody compared it to, to being a church of marbles or a church of grapes. I know that sounds weird, but what they said was marbles really only impact each other upon collision. And it's usually quick and then they're gone. But grapes, on the other hand, are connected to a vine. That they're closely bunched together. They're very tight-knit with one another. And, and so I kind of like that metaphor. I want us to be a, a grape church <laughs> and not a marble church. I want us to really uh, be connected with each other and ultimately connected to the vine. And, and that that fragrance that we have, that, that sweet fragrance of fellowship would be, would be pleasing uh, to God. And to do that, I think there is one thing that's important for us to consider, especially those of us who've been at Melanie Park a long time. I think if we were to look at the landscape of Melanie Park as a church, on average, I bet most people have had relationships with each other for 10, 15, some more than 30 years. So that is a tremendous blessing, isn't it? To have such a rich heritage of relationships with people. 
But that strength can also be a weakness. Because if you're new coming into this church, that's incredibly intimidating. And you're wondering, where do you fit in with all these people who have known each other for so long? Now, I think it's a shared responsibility, okay? But I do think the onus of the responsibility falls on those of us who've been here the longest. To make the, take the initiative, to make the effort, to go find somebody that you haven't had the chance to meet and introduce yourself. To invite them into your small group or the time that you have to go have lunch with them. Invite them over to your house. Do something that allows them to, to move beyond the, the cursory conversations that we have on Sunday morning as we're making our way out the door. I think that's really, really important for us. I would encourage us, especially if you're new, uh, to consider things like we do tonight. The prayer and praise time is really one of those opportunities of life here at Melanie Park where we have a chance to do something that allows us to go beyond just um, some of the, the conversations that we might have on Sunday morning in passing. It's a much more informal time. It's a chance where we get a an opportunity to, to visit with each other, to, to pray with one another, and just have some extended conversation that is not often afforded on, on Sunday morning. So uh, if you haven't made plans, let me urge you to come tonight at 6 o'clock and be a part of our, our prayer and praise and use that as an opportunity to uh, uh, get to know some people that maybe you haven't had the opportunity uh, to meet yet. Um, but either way, I, I would encourage us to all kind of together make a commitment. Can we do that? Just kind of recommit to ourselves that as you see people out there that you haven't had a chance to meet, that you will make a point to, uh, uh, to go meet them. And, and I would invite you, if you're new, uh, to come introduce yourself to, to those like myself, maybe that you haven't met before, and let's go have lunch together or let's spend some time with one another. Um, it's really important that what we do here at Melanie Park it is based on relationships between people programs don't make a church uh, cool performances don't make a church people make the church and more important relationships between people and so that's what i'm calling us to be committed to as a body of christ okay well we're going to open his word this morning but before we do let me uh, go to him in prayer father we do come to you and, and ask that as we enter into our time in your word that you will precede us by the work of your Spirit in our hearts and in our minds so that we would have ears to hear and eyes to see. Uh, Give us courage as we hear things that your Spirit prompts within us that would cause us um, to desire something different, something more meaningful in relationship with you, most importantly, but even with each other, that we would be courageously obedient to those promptings that your Spirit uh, has within us. May you invade our space our time together, because it is yours, and to your glory, and to your praise. May we rejoice in you. We pray this in your name. Amen. If you would, turn to Philippians chapter 3, chapter 3, verse 1. We'll pick up where we left off last time and uh, carry on from there. I appreciate you giving me the opportunity just to share my heart a little bit and... uh, I think we'll see that reflected in uh, our passage this morning. Chapter 3, verse 1, if you want to read along with me. Paul says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again to you is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. Let's stop there because this is kind of interesting, isn't it? 
Paul calls us to, to rejoice in the Lord. And it seems as if he's leading us down this path of, of worship and adoration. And then almost without warning, he, he says, beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. How, how do these two thoughts go together? If you read them for the first time, you think, is this one of Paul's kind of random thoughts and, and they're somehow not connected to each other? Or, or does he intend for them to go together? Well, I believe Paul is very purposeful when he writes his letters. I don't know this for sure, but something tells me he read and reread and thought about what he said just to make sure it was communicating what the Spirit of God had put on his heart. (laughs) And so I think these thoughts are very much connected. But it's a good question to ask, what does this call to worship have to do with this forthcoming warning? You see... I think there's a reason behind it, and this is it. There is a threat that Paul is aware of that has plagued the church. It has dogged his steps all the way from Jerusalem. And he knows that it's a matter of time before these ravenous wolves make their way into Macedonia. And he wants to to protect the Philippian church from their evil influence. And he knows that the best way to defeat this enemy is not by focusing on the enemy, but instead by focusing on the solution, which is what he began our passage with when he says, Rejoice in the Lord. You see, their worship of God, their focus on what he has done on their behalf is more than just an activity, it's a necessity. It was the protection that they needed from from drifting away. The reason is is that Paul knows that we as Christians, when we take our eyes off of God, we will inherently focus on ourselves. It is our default position. And when self becomes our preoccupation, sin now has a foothold. And deception is always quick to follow. It was true of the Philippian church and it's true for every single one of us in our church today. That's why he begins by saying, rejoice in the Lord. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Focus on Him and and you will not be distracted by the lesser things. But when we take our eyes off of Him, that's when we get in trouble. As Nehemiah reminded us in the Old Testament, he says, the joy of the Lord is your strength, right? Well, essentially what Paul is saying is an echo of what was said in the Old Testament. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Rejoice in the Lord. Paul puts our focus where it needs to be, rejoicing in the Lord. And then then he gives that warning. Look again at verse 2. He says, beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul is warning the Philippian church about those who put confidence in the flesh. Those who have a high opinion of their own accomplishments apart from Christ. Apparently, these were false teachers who were either in Philippi at the time or soon would be. But in either case, they were familiar to Paul. 
And we know this from his other letters as we examine what he writes about these false teachers. And we know that he was especially concerned about them because they added something to the gospel. Their teaching, including things that, that people needed to do in, in order to be qualified to receive God's grace. Prerequisites, if you will, that they claim to be necessary to make your faith effective. It's like those experiments that you, you did in high school where you had two ingredients and you put those two chemicals together and you watched them and nothing happened. And then you took this little catalyst, this little uh, almost invisible ingredient, you put it in there and <laughs> chemical reaction, right? Amazing, right before your eyes. Well, these false teachers claim to have the, the secret ingredient, the, the catalyst to make your faith effective. Jesus was important, perhaps. Faith was important, perhaps. But there was something more that you needed to do to merit God's favor, some, spun, some special catalyst that would make your faith effective. But not only that, these were the same teachers who went on to explain that these special acts of obedience that were necessary to make you qualified to receive God's grace, they were also necessary to preserve God's grace. Again, they were things that you needed to do in order not to lose your salvation. They took a variety of forms, but they all had one thing in common. They centered around something we can do that in some way merits a response from God. It, it was a confidence in the flesh, a trust in, in my accomplishments apart from or even in addition to the work of Christ on the cross. Paul gives a strong warning to these kinds of teachings when he says, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. Jesus plus anything always equals heresy. Every time. Beware. Beware of those who teach a different gospel. They're dogs, evil workers false circumcision. Those are interesting terms, aren't they? You, you read those the first time and you think, wow, seems kind of strong. What, what is Paul intending to, to communicate here? I think they do tell us something about what he's concerned about with these false teachers. You see, in the Jewish culture, dogs were unclean scavengers. They were despised as, as filthy, worthless, really, animals. It was a a derogatory term that, that zealous Jews would often call Gentiles. They would call them dogs because they saw them as unclean people for not following the law. Just as dogs were worthless animals, Gentiles were seen as, as worthless people. Paul says, look, these false teachers, they'll call you dogs because in their eyes your faith is worthless. But they are the dogs. They are the ones whose faith is worthless because they have added a work of obedience to the work of Christ on the cross. The only obedience that leads to salvation, Paul teaches over and over in the New Testament, is the obedience 
of faith. A faith that, that flows out of a heart of repentance in order to receive a righteousness that is not your own, that you cannot earn. They're not carrying out the, the good works of the, the Lord as they claim. He says they're evil workers. And they're wreaking havoc in the church of Jesus Christ. They see themselves as a, as a special people with a favored place in the eyes of God because of their deeds in the flesh. But as Paul will elaborate later in verse 18 of this same chapter, he says, they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, and who set their minds on earthly things. You, on the other hand, you, Philippian church, you are the true circumcision. And then Paul gives three qualities of, of true believers who have an authentic faith in Jesus Christ. Now, b- before we look at those, I want you to keep in mind that many that Paul is speaking to in this particular church would be Gentiles who were not circumcised. So when he tells them, you are the true circumcision, he must be talking about something that goes on in the heart and not just something that happens in the flesh. It's that same idea that Paul has in, in mind when he writes to the, the Romans and he says, for, there, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew, those set apart as a people of God. To be a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Now think about what he just said there and compare that to what he is saying in our passage this morning. Notice the connection, because Paul says, the true circumcision worship in in the Spirit. They glory in Christ Jesus. They put no confidence in the flesh. You see, the first characteristic of those who trust in the Lord with an authentic faith are those who worship in the Spirit of God. It describes a person who understands that apart from the Holy Spirit, there is nothing about me that would cause me to exalt God above myself. That's so important. Apart from the Spirit of God, there is nothing about me that would cause me to exalt God above myself. If I worship God, I do so because I'm surrendering to the work of His Spirit in my life. My worship is a response to His initiative. I do not choose, apart from the Spirit, to bow before the Lordship of Christ. In fact, Paul makes that point clear when he tells the Corinthians, no one can say Jesus is Lord except, how? By the Holy Spirit. Do you see the difference? The false teachers suggested that there was something that you could do to qualify yourself to receive God's grace. A secret ingredient or a prerequisite work that qualified you to be a part of His saving mercy. 
Paul says, no. No. God's grace is unmerited favor. You didn't earn it. In fact, you can't earn it. Because as he tells the Romans, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seek after God. All of us, every single one, has turned aside. There's no part of you that, that lends itself to, to deny self and receive Christ. True Christians understand that we are clean. Not because of what we've done, but because of what He has done on our behalf. There was nothing that we could do that would bring us to a place of faith. There was nothing that we could do that would add to our faith. There was nothing that we can do to preserve our faith. We worship in the Spirit of God because we understand that we have been redeemed. We have been rescued. Salvation is a gift that we receive by submission to His Holy Spirit with absolutely no room for pride in what we have accomplished on our own. Which is why he goes on to say, we glory in Christ Jesus. Put no confidence in the flesh. This next attribute describes the person whose eyes are fixed on Jesus. The author and perfecter of the faith that we have is necessary to believe. This is the person who, who boasts not in what they have accomplished for God, but instead on what God has accomplished for them through the person and work of Jesus Christ. They understand that the the only reason that sin no longer reigns in His Master is because we're not under the law. We're under grace. Our lives are not our own. We belong to Jesus. It's what prompts Paul to tell the Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. I glory in Christ Jesus. I put no confidence in the flesh. It's not about who I am. It's about whose I am. It reminds me of a a story of a gifted young pastor who was doing quite well in the new church that he was a part of, the The numbers continued to grow and he was very pleased with the progress. He began to feel pretty good about himself. And one day after a sermon, uh, somebody came up to him and said, "Uh, Pastor, I think you're becoming one of the the greatest expositors of this generation. (laughs) He felt pretty good about what he had been told. And uh, so on his way home from church, driving back with his wife in the car, he he told this story. He said, you know, Miss Franklin came up to me and She thought that I was one of the greatest expositors of this generation. Silence. So he went on to kind of fish for some affirmation. He said, you know, I wonder how many great expositors there are in this generation. She couldn't pass up the opportunity. One less than you think there are. (laughs) How easy it is for any one of us to put our confidence in the flesh, to revert back to the default position where self becomes our preoccupation and not our worship of God from whom 
all good things come. Where it's all about me and, and my list of credentials. How I stack up compared to those around me so that my acceptance from God is dependent upon my ability to prove my worth in comparison to other people. Paul then says, hey, look, if you want to play that game, okay, I'll play that game with you. Look what he says in verse 4. Although I myself may have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. He began to feel pretty good about himself. And and Paul makes this list, this resume, all all the uh, attributes that he had inherited as a part of his, his birth. He begins by talking about having been circumcised on the eighth day, which he says to validate that he's been on the inside from the beginning. He wasn't converted later in life as a Jew. One of, he was God's chosen people from the beginning. There was never a time when he lived outside of the, the fold. There was never a time that he was outside of that Jewish community. He grew up in a Christian Excuse me, a a Jewish home. His blood was pure Hebrew, citizen of Israel, born of the tribe of Benjamin. This one in itself separates him quite a bit from the masses because the tribe of Benjamin, one of the smallest of the 12 tribes, was the only tribe whose father was actually born in the promised land. It was the tribe of Benjamin was the only tribe who was still faithful to the the house of David after Solomon died. It was the tribe from which Israel's first king came forth, King Saul, after whom Paul, or Saul of Tarsus, had been named. All these attributes he, he inherited, but then he adds to the list those things that he had accomplished by his own efforts. He he was a Pharisee, one of a select group of men who were arguably the most respected leaders in all of Israel. Now, it's hard for us to appreciate this because when we read the Gospels, we see how Jesus interacts with the Pharisees. And in our minds, these are the bad guys. But in the minds of the Jewish society, the Pharisees were far and above the most valued and respected people of the Jewish society. And Paul just wasn't any average Pharisee. When it came time to defend the the nation of Israel from those who were destroying the credibility of their religious leaders upon which this nation was built and founded, he persecuted them for following a man that claimed to be the Messiah. He led the charge of persecuting the church in order to silence the opposition. He was on the front line of protecting the people of God. And he was justified in doing so because the law affirmed his innocence. Not necessarily because he never sinned, but because he used the law to forgive his sin. He was blameless because of his adherence to the rules of religion. He followed the letter of the law 
And it became the means by which he was accepted in the eyes of God. Paul says, if any man has mind to put a confidence, confidence in the flesh, I far more. But then there's the great reversal. Where he takes that resume and he tears it up and he throws it in the fire. And look at what he says in verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul uses an accounting term here, saying that anything I could have ever put in the credit column, when I look at the cross, becomes a debit. And the only credit I have is Jesus Christ. You see, Paul is talking about what it takes to to have a righteousness credited to our account. What it is that gives us peace with God and life everlasting. He makes the list of all the things that he either inherited or accomplished on his own. A list that any person in their right mind would look at and and they would say to themselves, if it were up to me and I looked at that list, I would say, he's in. He's in. But Paul says that's the point. It's not up to you and it's not up to me. I can't get in by what I've done. In fact, The more I rely on what I've done, the farther I move away from God's saving grace. Next week, when we look at the passage as it continues, we'll see how Paul describes his shift in direction. How he goes from the path that he was on to the path that he now walks. And we, as we read that, should look at it as an example that we are called to follow. But before we even go there, we have to understand and believe in our own heart that is necessary for us to change directions. To move from the path of pleasing self to a path of doing all things for the pleasing of God. For His good pleasure. If there is an attitude of self-sufficiency in our pursuit of knowing God, nothing Paul says next will make any sense to us. We have to be bankrupt. We have to empty our personal account of all our worldly deposits before the riches of His glory can be credited to us. Putting no confidence of the flesh. Giving all glory to Jesus Christ. And surrendering to His Spirit and His work in our life. You remember how we we talked about the example of Jesus Himself, how He emptied Himself? Remember when we talked about that, we we talked about what that meant for him to relinquish his independence in order to be dependent upon God. How he did nothing out of his own accord, but everything was in accordance with the will of his Father. He was constantly seeking to walk in the will of his Father. Well, that's the example, as we said then, and I'll remind you now that we are called to follow. Confidence in the flesh and confidence in the spirit are mutually exclusive. When one increases, the other will naturally decrease. That's why John the Baptist says what he does when he says, he must increase. But in order for that to happen, what? I must decrease. That's the way that works. And that's why worship is so important. That's why Paul begins by calling us to rejoice in the Lord. 
To be honest, that's the main reason we take time out to do what we're going to do tonight through our time of praise and worship. When we adore Him for who He is, it creates within us a humble heart that can be transformed into His image. It, It makes us moldable by the work of His Spirit to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. So I hope you'll come tonight, but, but whether you do or not, I pray that each one of us carries out our life with a heart of worship. I would ask that we be preoccupied with Jesus, that he's just one of those things that just keeps popping up in our mind. We can't get our mind off of him. Preoccupied with Jesus. Take some time this week perhaps to reflect on what he's done on your behalf. Meditate on that. Consider that. Let me give you some verses. If you will, write these down. I would encourage you at some point in this week to look up one or all of these and consider what they might mean for you. Romans 5, Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. You can stay in Romans and go to Romans 8, verses 1 through 5. Go over to Colossians. You'll like this one. Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. And then finally, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 to 21. Go to these places. Read these passages. Reflect on the significance of what they say about what He has done on your behalf. And then let me ask you to do one other thing. Journal about that and then call somebody. Call them and talk to them on the phone or go have coffee with them and just say, Hey, let me share with you what I felt God impress upon me as I read those passages this week. Let's be doers of the Word and not just hearers of the Word. Let's, let's take what we look at together on Sunday morning and do something more with it during the week. I'm going to close with um, a poem that really is a prayer. I'm going to actually post, post this on my blog because I think it would be worth going back to and looking at and making this prayer your own. And when I'm done with this, I'm going to say a few other words before we leave. So if you would, just bow with me as I pray. O Lord God, teach me to know grace precedes, accompanies, and follows my salvation, that it sustains the redeemed soul, that not one link of its chain can ever be broken. From Calvary's cross, wave upon wave of grace reaches me, deals with my sin, washes me clean, renews my heart, draws out my affection, kindles a flame in my soul, consecrates my every thought, work, word and deed, and teaches me thy immeasurable love. How great are my privileges in Christ Jesus. Without him, I stand far off, a stranger, an outcast. In him, I draw near and touch his kingly scepter. Without him, I dare not lift my guilty eyes. In him, I gaze upon my father God and friend. Without him, I hide my lips in trembling shame. But in him, I open my mouth in petition and praise. Without him... All is wrath and consuming fire, but in Him all is love and the response of my soul. Without Him is gaping hell below me in eternal anguish, but in Him its gates are barred to me by His precious blood. Without Him darkness spreads its horrors in front, 
but in him an eternity of glory is my boundless horizon. Without him, all within me is terror and dismay in him. Every accusation is charmed into joy and peace. Without him, all things eternal call for my condemnation, but in him they minister to my comfort and are to be enjoyed with thanksgiving. Praise be to thee for grace and for the unspeakable gift of Jesus. Amen.